Thank you all for coming and thank you, George, for that introduction. Um, it is my great pleasure to host this conversation tonight. I would also like to acknowledge that we meet on the lands of the Wajak Noonga people and also acknowledge the horrific murder of a Noonga child on the streets of our city not too long ago. It is a reminder that the violence of our colonial past is never really past. We grieve with all the families who have been impacted and triggered by this tragedy. Norman. Norman's time in Perth has been facilitated by the Center for Stories and Dr. George Kalis, who is the generous sponsor of the Patricia Kalis International Writing Fellowship. The fellowship aims to support the work of talented individuals who have demonstrated a commitment to ideas and practices that foster belonging and cross-cultural understanding. Norman is the inaugural recipient of this fellowship, which gives him $30,000 and is able to be at the Center for Stories for three months. Your work, Norman, has been described as vital and irresistible, tender and playful, dark and speculative, and as has been mentioned, sometimes all at the same time in the same story. So we will be talking, obviously, uh, about both your books, your book of uh, poetry and your book of short stories. There will be time for questions afterwards, and uh, we'll, um, uh, I am encouraged to encourage everyone to stay for drinks and chats too. So I'm going to begin by asking you what the fellowship has meant to you. Uh, yeah, everyone can listen, right? <laughs> yeah, I feel like the fellowship came in the rightest time for me because I badly needed money. <laughs> and I was like, it also, how to say, the idea of like, leaving Indonesia and then I can see Indonesia object more objectively or so subjectively <laughs> from, from like being away from Indonesia is quite important as, as an artist, as a writer, as a poet. So I feel like this fellowship uh, gives me that. They, it gives me an access where I can feel away at the same time. So And, this, and also I feel like Okay, I don't have to work for three months, basically. <laughs> and how do you think it has helped you connect with the local community of writers here? I feel like, so I've met, yeah, I say many writers, and I reconnect with Alan Van uh, because Alan came here last, last weekend for the Short Story Festival. So I feel like, uh, uh, I feel like it is a good chance to have a connection like in terms of like global queer connection between like like a queer Indonesian with a queer uh, Aboriginal Australian and then I kind of like and with queer Sudanese Australian and then with queer Australian who how to say who grew up in China so I feel like this kind of connection is important for for me as a queer person because I feel like um, the idea of people having 
similar even to different kind of negotiations with the social structure where they are in and then at the same time it feels similar to what's happening to me this kind of connection is important yeah from connection comes meaning somehow yes yes and uh, to to stretch that connection a bit further your um, book of poems sir jesse backers won the pen translation award um, so tiffany sal has translated yeah. both your books and this won the pen translation award uh, in 2019 So what does this mean to you in terms of being part of an international community of writers supported by pen who also work hard to highlight injustice and in many cases incarceration Uh I feel like the work of pen is of course important because sometimes how to say uh in all, it's often the state that silence and oppress writers yeah and then it's important for writers to have to live a free life to and and write fearlessly i feel and then this kind of uh how to say job is important yeah i think yeah yeah thank you so let's get to the actual words the words the translation um before i ask you to read I would be very interested in knowing um how that process worked for you working with Tiffany who obviously you're both fluently bilingual trilingual and how was it like to have her translate your work um from Indonesian uh, and English because you you've done both as well you've translated into English and Indonesian yourself Yeah because uh I started as a poet so I kind of like seeing translation as a kind of like linguistic game for me so when I translate Indonesian work to English because I I am translator too I tend to play with the word somehow and then it is how to say I'm not going to say my English is enough because I don't grow up with English but I see it more like how i navigate between with with what i have with the, with the text that i have while this kinds of how to say relationship is different when i write in indonesian and i feel like uh that's quite similar with tiffany because tiffany uh, grew up in english but she's indonesian and then has also intimate connection with indonesian i mean indonesian and english is so different and then the kind of linguistic game available to you is very different in, in each language english is very specific while how to say like indonesian is very rhythmic and it has how to say intricate like for example the word for the n is tamat and tamat is palindrome you read it is tamat between like from the beginning or the end so in indonesian kind of believe there is no end it's basically a circle so the kind of how to say linguistic game is not there in English so i feel like uh when i apply uh uh these kinds of linguistic, linguistic game in my writing it's kind of fun yeah so what you're saying is that the rhythms and the patterns of both languages are quite different quite different and so different yes but uh, 
when I read it, I don't speak or read Indonesian and I re read in English and when I read it, I get a sense of the rhythm. Um, so I'm just wondering how, um, how, how is that process for you in the sense of how satisfied, how happy are you with your ideas and the rhythms that you specifically wanted uh, um, in these translations? I feel like I work so well with Tiffany. We are basically sisters now. Uh, we, we used to call ourselves like linguistic, linguistic partners in crime because we kind of like, I, I told Tiffany, I like, I'm an experimental poet. So I would love to have an experimental translator. So it's just the idea of fidelity in translation should be fluid. So I feel like uh, it's kind of, how to say, so in the beginning when we when she translated, uh, when we worked on the Sergio Six Bacchus, it took us around three years to finish such a thin book because we, we have a non-stop. Tiffany call it pull and pull relationship. Like we were just keep pulling which uh, about like which the direction we would take regarding a certain phrases. Yes, yeah, so the poetry took longer than the stories? The, the poetry took us three years and the short stories half a year. Interesting. But you should ask Tiffany more about translation and how to say you can read in Jiramundo's website about like a little conversation between us. We talk about food, not <laughs> all of serious stuff. You've also said, Norman, that an avid reader living in poverty is a rereader. And you also mentioned rereading the Bible yeah. during your childhood without describing yourself as particularly religious. Could you speak a little bit about your reading habits as a child and how the, the fragments that you read have informed you as a writer. Yeah, I always find it funny because I we, we I grew up in a working class household, and then my my father was a reporter. So what is available at home is old newspaper, old women's magazines, and then the Bible. And then whenever people ask me what is the best thriller you read, and I said the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of because it's it's just kind of weird, right? I mean. There is a part where the where God supposedly stopped the earth spinning, even though like it's physically impossible. And then how to say the idea of like and there are like the, the New Testament basically it's written in four perspectives. And then the idea of one story having multiple versions, it's kind of like I mean, for a young queer kid, wow, you can actually rewrite the word, something like that. And then it's even though when I was older, I realized, oh, actually Christian is homophobic religion. I mean, when I was younger, when then, how to say, when those kind of, because I feel like uh, Indonesian Christian is much more tolerating than the Western Christian somehow. And then uh, I, I kind of like find it liberating to explore these kinds of narrative, like, yeah. And then uh, when, because I grew up with a lot of old newspaper and then whenever people ask, what is your influence? And I'm like, tennis news, of course. <laughs> and then I don't know how I, I actually 
pretty much like I was 19 when I first read a novel in English. And I read like Jumpa Lahiri's book, Anakan Thermot Earth. It, it was brilliant. And after that, I, I kind of like force, yeah, force is a good word. I force myself to read more. Uh, like I should read globally. I should read transnationally. I should read more writing and translation. I should try to, how to say, uh, understand what is happening with another queer person on the, uh, on the across the world, mm. and then so I know more my position in the world, something like that. Yeah. So, um, what was uh, you mentioned Jhampa Lahiri and Unaccustomed Earth? So, what do you remember now as the most appealing aspect of that book of stories? So, this is the first book in English that you read, and it's a book of short stories, and she's one of my favorite writers, so yeah, I'm really interested in, uh, you know, how did, how did you feel and how did it influence your own stories and that um, quite specific nature of cultural references that are scattered throughout her work, yeah. you know, as you know, it's not just Indonesian literature and it's not just Indian literature, it's, um, you know, uh, there are regions and layers within that. So, yeah. how did that? Make I feel you like feel? her influence on my work is quite visible. Like, for example, there is a short story titled "Sexy," and it's narrated by a white woman who is a mistress for an Indian man. And then it's kind of like a pathway to talk about identity and then like the contemporary Indian American lives. And I do that in my book because I, I often use like hetero characters to look at a, like queer lives and then you can, for example, how to say, unload all the hetero hypocrisy <laughs> that, that is like uh, in Indonesian lives, for example. And then it's, I feel like because I'm, Batak identity is a quite, it's similar to me, immigrant because like we don't live in the, Tapanuli anymore. We live in like in among the Japanese mm -hmm. in Jakarta. So I feel like the idea of being a in a stranger in a land that where you grow up is quite uh, how to say liberating for me. So being an immigrant in your own country. Uh, yeah, you know, somehow in a of because I feel like even though we speak Indonesians, there are so many uh, also like cultural barriers. So like for example, for if a Muslim Japanese friends came to my house, they wouldn't even try to 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 drink the water because they feel like it might contain pork, which is understandable. But then in the context that about uh, a Christian is minority and then the Muslim Japanese is the majority in Indonesia, it kind of like quite like making kind of like racial tension somehow, and then this. For example, and it's because in Indonesia we love gathering so much, and then these kinds of little stuff kinds of add up in our daily lives. Like for example, you are having people. We have a monthly gathering in each area. We, we call it Arisan, and then whenever people come to my house, my mother will, would be hundred percent use catering. So they he she would ask the restaurant to cook food, so people would eat food. So it's kind of like creating. I feel like, well, racial tension between Indonesia and this small stuff add up. Because Indonesia is basically, it has so many, how to say, colors. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Now, 
we have been talking about your stories and your poems and um, I would love it if you would read the poem that we discuss scenes from a beautiful life so Norman will read it in Indonesian and I will read the English version afterwards I have to read from my phone So this is from the book Sergius Mencari Bakus or Sergius Six Bakus in English. It was published like seven years ago. Uh, Keindahan Hidup Wali kota baru membangun taman imajiner di tengah-tengah kota. Dari jendela di kamar masing-masing, kami bisa membayangkan pintu gerbang raksasa. Jalan konblok, hutan cemara, hamparan rumput dan bunga, danau kecil di timur laut taman, lengkap dengan perahu-perahu angsa, ganggang hijau di dasar bagian dangkal danau, para bebek putih hitam dengan papan mereka, jangan memberi makan bebek, di dunia, di danau hidup ikan-ikan dan anak-anaknya, kami tak memakan mereka. Danau memberikan taman, rumput menghijaukan taman, Kunang-kunang menawarkan cahaya. Ketika malam dibentangkan layar putih, orang-orang datang menonton kehidupan mereka sendiri, diambil dengan kamera tersembunyi. Lampu-lampu menyala, bulan di permukaan air, hujan turun. Air menyelinap di antara konblok menuju sungai bawah tanah. Waria-waria di kota dipekerjakan di taman, menjadi tukang kebun, petugas kebersihan, satuan keamanan, Dokter hewan, alih penyakit tanaman, desainer lanskap, akuntan, manajer rekreasi, dan bahkan penjaga tepi danau Siap terjun bagi siapa saja yang tak tahu cara kembali ke darat Mereka tak lagi kelaparan, tak menunggu mobil yang melambat dan kemudian berhenti Setiap malam purnama, seekor kuda suci bertanduk menyeruak dari balik tirai pohon-pohon cemara Bercahaya seperti bintang utara, memberkati taman, memberkati kota Setelah satu lagi hari berat sebelum tidur, tiap-tiap dari kami membayangkan taman itu yang ada khusus untuk kami, kami merasa lebih baik. So this is scenes from a beautiful life. The new mayor built an imaginary park in the heart of the city. We can all see it from the latticed windows in our tiny rooms, the giant iron gates, the brick-paved paths, the grove of pines, the grassy lawns, dotted with all kinds of flowers, the small lake in the northeast corner complete with swan boats and algae floating in the shallows and ducks and their little sign too, warning, don't feed the ducks. In the lakes swim the mujais, and in the mother's mouth swim their kids. We don't eat the mothers. The mothers don't eat the kids. The lake gives it all a nice blue touch. The grass gives it all a nice green touch. The fireflies offer themselves as lights every night. We set up a big screen. Men and women come to watch movies about themselves filmed with hidden cameras. 
The street lamps glow, the moonlight shimmers across the lake. The rain falls. Water seeps between the bricks, deep into the earth and to the river beneath. All the warrior in the city work there. Male to females as gardeners and sweep, street sweepers, security guards, vests, vets and arborists, landscape architects and accountants, recreation managers and lifeguards too, ready to dive in after everyone, after anyone who can't figure out how to get back to land. They'll never go hungry again, never have to wait for the cars that slow then stop. Every full moon, a magical unicorn leaps out from behind the curtain of pines, shining like the North Star, showering blessings on the park, showering blessings on the city. Another hard day over, and before we turn in, we all dream about the park the mayor made just for us. We feel better. We feel better. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the words that and I the English pronunciation <laughs> is by Tiffany Sao. Thank you. Yes. Now that I mean, I could have chosen, you know, a dozen poems, but I um, want you uh, would like to talk about this because we there's so much going on here. You yeah, know, so much you going know. on. The new mayor built an imaginary park in the heart of the city. I mean, that begins like a narrative and you, you feel like you want to know more and then it sort of, it is surprising, it is beautiful, uh, it is um, epic and sad. So um, what, what is it about that, that sort of sense of imaginative as well as magic realism that uh, this poem carries and this undercurrent of hope and despair. So, so I, I call this book is from my uh, discontinued future era. So I have this kind of like, how to say, idea about like this, like certain kinds of like future that is like discontinued because of the structure, because of the system, because of the everything the world just won't allow you to pursue that future so this this uh, poem is a response to to Ridwan Kamil is the Bandung mayor the mayor of city of Bandung who often like make uh, like like public parks but then I kind of feel how to say because Indonesian uh, trans women uh, their their history are revolves with, with the idea of park, but then this kind of like public spaces are no longer like accessible for them because if they come, people will take photo, post it on the social media. Oh, trans people are coming to our park, something like that. And then these kinds of idea of how to say like who gets to be public. It's mm -hmm. it's really big thing in Indonesia. I mean, uh, for example, if a if a if to to guys holding and it would probably if it's posted to social media if it's probably went viral and then people would be aggressive about it but then even if it's like a hetero couple oh so cute when you will have baby and get married something like that so it's the, the different kind of 
uh, yeah, so the idea of the poem is kind of like about uh, this continued future, and then I try uh, if I how to say if this mayor make a park for queer people, but then I kind of like because it was I was so annoyed with the news, and then I put okay imaginary park. It's it's too generous of me to imagine that he would give us a real park. Mm. So yeah, mm. I imagine like it's imaginary parks, yeah. mm. something like that. Yeah, I love the magical unicorn leaps out from behind the. Yeah, he's trying to be funny. <laughs> 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 Thank you for reading the talk. Um, Norman, you've spoken before of making sense by inventing and reclaiming queer narratives and histories in order to make um, queer histories visible, uh, so to feel centered rather than feel marginalized. And if we were to look at happy stories mostly, can you tell me which stories you think do this, this, this centering and not marginalizing? So which are your favorite stories in this collection and how did it come about? How do you play with the idea of happy stories, mostly? How to say, it's, I don't know what, how to start. <laughs> uh, because, uh, how to say, like maybe let's just talk about like one story. So there is kind of like reader's favorite uh, title uh, in Indonesia. Kisah sesungguhnya tentang lelaki raksasa, the true story, the true the, the true story of the story of the giant. That's the translation. Yep. And then it it is it spoke about uh, how to say it revolves around a fictional uh, tale. So even like the the tale is fictional. And it's about like about a Batak person who like went so tall, and then so basically a giant, and then it's it revolves around uh, how uh, the Dutch want to control the area and need to need this giant to like to be Christian, and so so the, the Dutch like sending the mission there. So it's kind of like the idea of like ways. Uh, for Dutch people to colonize the Badak somehow. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, I, I kind of like use it. Uh, so the story revolves around kind of like love story between friends, something yeah. like that. And and it's it's more like it's, it talks, I want to talk about like uh, the, how to say in English, like the legacy of colonialism. I don't, I know legacy should be good, but I don't know how to, the word for it in English. The legacy or like, the evac of colonialism in Batak culture. Yeah, yeah and uh, it's, it's quite a long story. The it's true, very long. The true story of the story of the giant. It's, uh, and uh, yes, it critiques colonialism, but it also makes references to pop culture and uh, on the first page and in the first paragraph before even the the story of the friends gets told there's a reference to um, you know Brokeback Mountain so the uh, you're, you're guiding the, the reader yeah. gently all the way through um, until you know the, the epic story of the giant who grows and grows. But I have to confess if you ask like all the 
gay guys from Indonesia, they would say that Brokeback Mountain changed their lives somehow because it's the kind of like most pirated American movies for us. <laughs> yeah, and I'm telling you, it was shown on the theater at the time, but I was 15 and having no money, so I, yeah, it's not, don't, yeah, please understand. <laughs> and then it kind of like, um, how to say, I, I always find it fascinating because it's, it's basically a love story between two white cowboys, right? So how can I relate to that? And it's the kind of question that I've been, like, I keep asking uh, when I was writing. Like, how could, for example, a white queer read my work and find connection? So I feel like it's, yeah, how to say, yeah. Even like sometimes feelings moves like across barriers, like all the barriers, it's just break all the borders somehow. Yeah, and this story is written in a, it has a very interesting structure. At times it reads like a very factual, matter of fact report uh, before it sort of goes off into this, you know, the story of the giant, which is pretty incredible. And then you go back into this relationship that the boys, the friendship that they have. And um, again, it's very colloquial and very matter of fact. And so it, it's, um, how did that sort of evolve as a story? Did you write it in uh, one go? Or I write it in one night. You write like, it in one night. So it's kind of like almost 10,000 words in Indonesian. Yeah. yeah. So I wrote it just one night. I didn't sleep, and then in the morning I sent it to my boyfriend. Read it, please. And then, yeah. And then for like shorter stories, like the six or seven pages, there are some that it took me like five years to find the ending because it just <laughs> I just don't know what. So like the story about so there is a story about like a guidance for queer like queer poet who live in Jakarta how to like navigate heartbreak, and then I don't know like. I don't know how to end this kind of story and it took me like five years to find the ending. And there's such a lot of overlap between your poetry and your stories. Some of your stories read like poems and some of your poems yeah. are, are narrative like like a, you'd expect a story to be. So um, I know you've been probably asked this before but for you it isn't a different process. No. You you just write and I just write. you discover whether it's a poem or a story afterwards kind of thing, is it? Yeah, so there are a poem in the book that was published uh, as a short story. Mm. And then there are a short story in the book that publishes a poem. So who cares? <laughs> so would it be different uh, if you were publishing, say, in Indonesian? Is it easier for a poem to be just a poem in Indonesian, but not that easy when it's translated into English? It becomes more narrative-like. No, basically, it's hard in any form in Indonesia to sell a book. So I don't worry about it because okay, no one will buy it. So yeah, just keep just keep writing somehow. And then, I don't know, I kind of feel like, I don't know, I kind of like people often 
oh my my brains change when I like change form doesn't happen that way with me I just write now I I seem to be quoting a lot of your own words back at you but that's because you're very eloquent and I love this you've said uh, somewhere that happiness requires an endless list of privileges. Yes. I think you've said that in an interview with Tiffany. So can you speak a little bit about this? Um, how, you know, you've, you've said how the poems and stories arrive, but uh, what is yeah. this idea of happiness as a list of privileges? Because I don't know how to articulate this shortly, because it's going to be very long. Uh, people often associate, like, so people want happy gays. People want happy gays to be the poster of how to say progress. Oh, it's better now. But then, when people actually uh, look closely, uh, is queer people like our queer people in Indonesia have a better living condition? It's it's actually the question that needs to be asked. I mean, our Indonesian trans people have access to jobs that's the kind of question that needs to be asked but it's it is often um, forgotten because we have rich gays who came from rich families travels abroad photos their food on Instagram and then it's everything better but then so for for like working class queer it's different kind of reality for us so I feel like uh, this kind of how to say unsaid business needs to be said so i i feel like i need to talk more about how the our concept of happiness is becomes sort of like so the word for the, the, the title of the book in indonesian is cerita cerita bahagia hampir seluruhnya and it revolves around the word hampir because hampir is means almost and hampir is so similar to the word vampire, vampire. So I, I, I kind of like built the, the story the, between like revolves around that word. The idea of happiness be, becomes a vampire for queer people in Indonesia. Like, yeah. That's why I said happiness requires an endless list of privileges because it does. I mean, yeah. Sometimes I I, whenever I, I get, for example, say, oh, it's not that bad now, because I, sometimes people, it came from a place of not knowing what happened in other people's lives somehow, from, not from understanding. So I kind of like, yeah, I'm so pissed. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm aware I have more questions, but I'm aware that I should probably leave time for questions in case anyone has. So I have one more question before I open it up to the audience. What are you currently working on, if anything? Oh, it's Still. a novel. Mm, yeah. It's a novel. Yeah, girls need to make money. So, <laughs> I mean, let's just be like honest about it. It's kind of like whenever, oh, do you, I, oh, what are you writing poetry? And it's like, okay. But then, what are you writing novel? Well, what kind of storyteller? Something like that. People get excited more with novels. <laughs> that, yeah, that's a sad truth. Because, I mean, poetry is fun. You can do it once a day and you treat it like daily. 
medicine somehow, work in the morning, work at home, and sleep again, something like that. You cannot do that with novel, right? And then, yeah, I'm writing, I'm working on novels, so it, um, in short, I would say, you know, like, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Love in the Time of Cholera. It's just like the gay love in the time of cholera. <laughs> so it's about kind of like two young lovers who both lead heterosexual life, but then at the end of the day, uh, sorry, at the end of their lives, like when they are like old, they kind of like uh, reconcile. But one of them dead, died kind of, so the novel is about the funeral. Yeah. But also love in the time of cholera, so it's mysterious. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, are there any questions, Andrew? Um, I guess Rashida brought up uh, magic realism as a kind of form, which maybe is a, a an English language term that I feel like has been applied to your work and also um, the work of a lot of Indonesian writers in translation, this idea of magic realism as a, as a form. I guess I wanted to ask you whether that, how that translates or whether that makes sense to you in terms of um, the, the way that translations of Indonesian lit have been, have been read overseas. Oh, I mean, my feelings about being read as magical realism? Yes. I mean, yeah. I don't know, I find magical realism more strange word. I prefer speculative because, uh, how to say, I don't know, I feel like uh, magical realism is kind of like exoticized way to say fantasy, just say fantasy, something like that. I feel like it's kind of like just want to, I feel it to make it sound sexy, oh magical realism, but then it's actually fantasy. So, and I, I honestly prefer fantasy because it's, it's how to say, it's an umbrella term for so many different kind of, like the idea of uh, speculative fiction is to destabilize reality, right? So I feel like the kind of like the idea of speculativeness, fantasy, I, I just prefer. And it's also uh, different when you yeah, magic realism, yes, well, you know, easy term, but your work also has um, myth and, you know, cult pop cultural references and then sort of takes off into the speculative wor world while bringing us, uh, centering us quite firmly in reality. So um, I suppose it's hard to describe because uh, in uh, you, there would be an Indonesian word for it that would more adequately describe it oh. than magic realism, I suppose, perhaps. Do you think? No, we just... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I, okay. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm not that literary, maybe. But I feel like there are just stories. And then yeah. it just happens. I mean, Indonesian has... Indonesians have been telling stories from long ago and then I feel like they don't have to define it in any way and their stories survive so I kind of like I don't want to define it yeah. and I because I want my stories to survive something like that. yeah because I feel like I don't know yeah, yeah. 
I suppose it's also a very Western thing, isn't it? It's, immigrant writing, diaspora yeah, writing. It's so Western thinking yeah. to define something, mm -hmm. I feel. Because English is so specific. Mm -hmm. When you talk, oh, I met her, when, where. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyone else? Uh, Krishna? so many questions, but I'm going to stick to two. A very particular small one, why was the word warrior not translated into uh. English? That's a specific question. Um, but a bigger question is really taken with the idea of your sense that, you know, in a sense that there's a big gay role in Indonesia to be written about. And as I think about it, you cannot think of Indian Indonesian cinema, for example, without thinking about the Bukharia. The, the what? The Bukharia. Oh. Do you know the name? It's I know. from another generation. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and the Gu was gay, not openly so, but he was wow. gay. Uh, unquestionably <laughs> so. <laughs> unquestionably <laughs> so, but not openly so. Then Ong Ho Kham, who is one of the yeah. great historians of the country, um, was a gay. So there have been some very, very significant gay people who have made an extraordinary contribution to Indonesian culture, and we don't see that history written up. So I'm really encouraging you to think about this from another generation, yeah. from my generation's point of view, in some ways. Yeah, I actually, how to say, because it, Queerness is so erased in Indonesian literature. People start calling me pioneer, and I was so offended. It's come on. There's no pioneer in, in like 200. It's like if I write in like two centuries ago, you can say pioneer. But I write in, for example, like 200. I mean, I'm not pioneer. There will be Indonesian queer po poets in the past, but you erase them, so we don't have access to them now. I mean, this. I think it's so how to say. And it's also, I feel, very straight thing to do, to call a queer poet pioneer. And then, thank you for telling me that Gukarya is queer. I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that. And, uh, yeah, he was pretty big back home. But he died, so you don't have to worry about him anymore. Uh, yeah, and about the word worry, I, 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 told, I told Tiff uh, this word how to say was meaningful for Indonesian trans people because so it's it's kind of like a bit historical so the one of the Indo Jakarta governor Ali Sadikin he was quite an ally at the time and then he wanted trans people to have more access to money and then to have a better living condition so uh, he invent so the word itself is not a hundred percent not problematic it's it has problems too but then it it is how to say it has much better uh, how to say intention than the words that people used at the time for trans people so I feel like I I want my trans siblings to to how to say to retain the word we, we are we, we kind of like we want we want it to be there so when I when I asked Tiffany, when I because uh, my UK publisher is a radical translation, like translating publisher, I kind of like asked them to keep it, and then they just say yes. That's 
so it's more how to say like political reasons Can I ask a follow-up question to the to the one about Wadia, and then ask a more substantial question? I presume it was for the same reason that you didn't translate or have have the term Banshi translated in other works of yours. Oh, it's what my f father said when I grew up, like every day. So I just this book's kind of like how to say uh, the way I uh, unload all of that so yeah I just I want to look at this book and still see myself somehow yeah if it makes sense I feel like if I use the word like faggot um, it's different I, I I don't grow up in English and then sometimes even though it's horrendous even though it's uh, traumatic sometimes uh, it's better to put some of this like in paper somehow yeah and then you can google about it so i i feel like people <laughs> need to read with google on their hand please <laughs> yeah okay can, can i follow up with a more general question yeah um i have the impression that there has been a, a major shift in the last 10 years or so with younger indonesian writers breaking out of a very narrow publishing opportunity for their translations, uh, where previous generations would have been published perhaps by a university press in translation, very small print run, and only reaching a very limited, committed audience. It seems to me now that writers of your generation have broken out into more commercial uh, publishing opportunities internationally and are getting recognition for their works from a much broader, more general readership. Why, firstly, is my impression correct? And secondly, if so, why do you think that has happened? What is the dynamic economic, cultural, political, which has led to your generation having access to a kind of global publishing opportunity? It of course relates to the accessibility of information. I mean, in, in the era of Twitter news about the fellowship, this fellowship, for example, I got it from Twitter. So, yeah, I mean, before, probably people like Oh, I got this fellowship that I found from a friend, from a friend, but it's not happening like that anymore. You basically have anything, like the information, we can access it. So, also, I feel my generation uh, are, I feel we are more independent because we want to have more control of our work. We want more, how to say, we want. We want our decisions to be more informed regarding like how we are published, how how we are presented, how our I mean it's important for us. Yeah. I feel like for a queer person, uh there there used to be kind of like, oh he's the gay writer and then sometimes people kind of like want to pigeonhole you. 
but then also in this uh, in this era uh, the idea of being gay writer is not scary anymore I mean who cares this time I mean people people I feel like uh, with more agency uh, in our as it's like the like in a way we present ourselves and our work it gives us also more more power regarding how yeah so we can kind of uh, get agent and then get I, I I love indie publishers but then I mean people if they want to be just it's okay so yeah it's more like we have more options speaking of which the lovely Nat has books for sale and I would highly recommend that you get them if you don't already have them because you know you can talk about writing and then you can just simply read it to know what it's about and I would uh, yeah recommend this I had not encountered Norman's writing before I was asked to have this conversation and I am delighted and I intend to seek them out and stalk them online all the time now so thank you thank you for being a fabulous audience Please stay and chat and have a few drinks and buy lots of books. Christmas is coming up. <laughs>